You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. This um, past couple weeks, I finished a book. You can put the cover up. I finished a book called Black Flags. It's about the rise, as the subtitle makes obvious, the rise of ISIS. It's a history of the rise of the Islamic fundamentalism, particularly the terrorist aspect of that. It's a a history of the modern Middle East, uh, various Islamic sects. Uh, Yes, they have sex, just like Christianity has sex. Uh, They have cult leaders, like we have cult leaders. Um, and, uh, and it's also about, interestingly, about some of the uh, Islamic terrorist leaders like Zarqawi, Osama bin Laden, and others. And, uh, and also what I, was really informative to me is not only the terrorist leaders, but also the many Muslim and both religious Muslim but also uh, ethnically Arab leaders who are opposing them and the clerics who oppose them. We, the, the terrorists get a lot of the limelight, and that's what they're trying to do, but the guys who are a little quieter and behind the scenes who have thwarted and have really done a tremendous amount of job stopping violence, of course when it's stopped we don't hear about it, right? But when they stop it, it's a tremendous thing, and they work tirelessly uh, trying to do this. And that's what this book is about. It's just interesting, a little interesting fact. That's a picture of the cover there is a mugshot of Zarqawi. He was basically a thug. He was a hoodlum uh, in a town out of Jordan. Uh, went to prison, became kind of a tough guy in prison, got out of prison, was released, and went into Iraq and tried to be in a terrorist. And nobody cared. Nobody, you know, you're just one of many. We don't, who are you? You're a nobody. And um, uh, uh, the Taliban wouldn't even meet with him. And, um, and then until the United States decided and the U.S. and the U.N. Security Council to uh, uh, make a case for why we should be over there uh, militarily uh, fighting the terrorists, decided to make, we needed to put some faces to the terrorists. So we put his picture up in the U.N. Security Council and overnight, Zarqawi went from being a nobody thug to an international superstar terrorist. Because if you're a terrorist, if you're a, one of those ideologicals, if the United States is afraid of this guy, I'm going to join him. I'm going to give him my money. And he literally, within a week, went from being a nobody to being in charge and even threatening the Taliban. Just a little nuance of the story. But the book, what has helped me to do in our present situation of ISIS, I think it was published in 2015, so it's a year old still, is there's two themes that run through the book that I appreciated, or I learned, I should say, as I went through the book. The first one is just the generational hostilities in the Middle East. Not just in the Middle East, but the books about the Middle East. Just the generational, for hundreds of years, tribes, and groups, the Shiites, the Sunnis, they've been fighting each other and arguing and killing each other for a long time. The terrorists, like Zarqawi, take advantage of that and provoke it and provoke it so that they'll actually fight each other more. That's part of the, why there's such extreme violence. It's been around for a long, long time. 
The other thing that caught me is, as you listen to it, the author does a great job in also telling personal stories, personal stories of the, of the devastation and trauma of these terrorist attacks uh, in the Middle East, um, and then also the stories of the, the terrorists themselves, but also t- the people who, who are uh, fighting them, whether they're in the military or the CIA or the other country's version of the CIA, uh, what they're doing and they're sacrificing their lives and their families to fight ISIS and these other terrorists. And it's very, very, very personal in that sense. As I was thinking about this and I was looking at, read through our passage for today, uh, it's a passage that is in one that we could quickly pass over and just say, oh, it's, a, it's a, an event of a, of a woman who asked for healing and got some healing. And yet, in this passage, Matthew very masterfully weaves in this event a personal story. It's a very personal story for this woman and her daughter, but it's one that's in the context of many generational hostility, many generational years of hostility. And we need to understand the hostility to appreciate her personal story. So I'm going to read this um, now. If you stand with me, we're going to look at Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. The words will be up on the screen, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. We read out of the ESV version. It's Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord for us on this day. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But, when, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done, to you, be it, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this passage. We ask that you open all of us, our minds, our hearts, to receive what you would have for each of us on this day. We thank you in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to make the case that this passage talks about two basic themes. One's pretty obvious and one's a little bit more subtle, but you need to understand the subtle one to appreciate the more obvious one. And I'm going to say it this way, is that the gospel is both panoramic and very personal. The gospel is very panoramic, but very personal. What do I mean by panoramic? Um, is that it's a wide view of of a broad area. When you have a panoramic view, you have a wide view, and when you see the wide view, you understand the whole picture. You can see in all directions, and it's the fact that you can see that much gives you a context and appreciation for the whole. And the gospel addresses that panoramic view, as we hopefully will see. But the gospel is also very personal, very personal. It touches individual lives. Very specific people with very specific needs, and they express very specific faith. And this is a place where those two kind of things, the panoramic and the personal, merge in this story. 
I'm going to first just walk through this passage verse by verse as I often do, make some comments, and then we're going to step back and sort of look at the panoramic and then look at the personal. Let's look at verse 21. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus, if you remember from last week, had just confronted or had had an altercation, I should say, with the, the Jewish leaders, and he confronted them on their hypocrisy and their unbelief. And in that tension of being dealing that with him, Jesus decided to withdraw. The word often used for Jesus, he withdraw to a desolate place to pray. That means he withdrew from people intentionally to get away from the hustle and bustle and demands, in this case maybe even the conflict with the Jewish leaders. So he left there and he went away from there and withdrew to get some rest, to prepare for the next stages of his ministry. But what's odd about this, and to us English readers, 2,000 years after Matthew wrote the book, we miss the significance of what he did. He goes and he went away from there and he went to Tyre and Sidon. Jesus walked one city's 30 miles outside of Galilee, outside of Israel, and one of them's 50 miles out. He just didn't make a wrong turn. He, he went way out of his way, 50 miles to take a rest and to get away from the Jewish uh, tension within the Jewish leaders. That's not a little thing. And, and we need to appreciate that he did that. And he intentionally, he didn't, it wasn't just a little out of the way. It was a lot out of the way for him to get here. And it was not a Jewish community. It was a Gentile. I use the word Gentile. I simply mean a non-Jew. In the Bible, the Jews, Gentiles, you're either Jewish or you're Gentile. Whether you're Egyptian or Assyrian, Babylonian, doesn't make a difference. We're all Gentiles. That's what he's talking about here. And he went to these cities. And he pulls away from the leaders. And he, I think, very symbolically travels to a non-Jewish area to have this time of rest. He actually rests in a city of his archenemies, or Israel's archenemies. It's like saying, you know what, Monica and I are going to take a little vacation, we're going to hit the beaches of North Korea, and really let down, okay? That's essentially what he's doing here. I don't know if North Korea has beaches, and okay? <laughs> I was actually going to look on Travelocity, decided not to spend my time, Okay? Um, and it appears that not only does Jesus want to reprieve from the Jewish opposition, but he intentionally is trying to make a statement by being there. So he goes on in verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. It's interesting. It's easy again for us in English to overlook. We think of it's grammatical, but he says, And behold, that's a word, like, And behold, the child is born. Right? Christmas? It's, it's a big deal. Matthew's saying, this is a big event. Behold, it's an announcement that something's about to happen you should pay attention to. And this event was focused on one woman in a whole city. An unnamed woman. An unnamed Canaanite woman. The only thing we know about her, we know a few things about her. One is she's a mother, and that she has a, a daughter, who is suffering very severely and probably for a while. And she obviously loves her daughter very much because she's trying very, very hard to get healing for her daughter. Notice also that she calls Jesus Lord and Son of David. She's a Canaanite woman in a Canaanite city. Jesus shows up and she somehow is calling him Master and Son of David. Those are not Canaanite terms. We are not told how she came about this knowledge. We, we don't know 
whether somebody was in Israel, came up there, or she had been in Israel and heard about Somehow she knew about Jesus, and she knew her theology, her biblical understanding was enough for her to understand this guy's the master, and he's the son of David. He's the eternal king. He's the one I want to talk to. We don't know how she got that way. And her need and her knowledge combined to give her a boldness to come to Jesus for a specific request. Her request is very simple. Have mercy on me. Her daughter's sick, but she's requesting mercy for herself, her trauma, her struggle with her daughter's illness. She does ask for her daughter to be healed, but the mercy is for herself. Look at verse 23. He says, But he did not answer her a word, he being Jesus. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Jesus does not verbally respond at all. We assume that he heard her because it says he did not respond with a word. He, he, didn't, he didn't give her any notice. didn't say anything. And that's what upset the disciples. His silence is a response. His silence, by not saying something, is a response to her. He's waiting to see, first of all, I think, and I'll make the case, see how his disciples will react to her. And then he's also trying to see how she'll respond. So Jesus knows that his silence will reveal the states of their heart. His silence will provoke them. One way or the other, they're going to respond to that and it'll show the state of the disciples and even her own heart. Notice that the disciples' concern. Who are they concerned about in this statement? Send her away. She is crying out after us. I don't remember them being named in her, her plea. Right? They're with Jesus. They're supposed to be resting with Jesus. But suddenly it becomes an issue that they're annoying us. Okay? She wants you, but we're annoyed. We, do the, we don't like this. And what this is indicating to them, what this is showing, is I think a couple things about the disciples. We shouldn't be surprised, but it shows something. One of all, I think it shows their innate intolerance for a Canaanite woman. Their racial tension with a Canaanite woman. Both that she's Canaanite, a Gentile, and that she's a woman. She shouldn't be approaching men. And they didn't like that. I think also it, there was an annoyance. They were there. They were resting. She kept on, and she kept on, and she kept on. So they wanted Jesus to sire. They demonstrated their ethnic bias. Their prejudice. They demonstrated their gender bias. And I think they even demonstrate, I'm making this up, but ministry bias. Hey, I do hard work ministry. I need a vacation. Leave me alone. We spend time with the crowds. We don't need the crowds. Send this lady away. It reveals their hearts. Verse 24. Jesus answers to them, I was answered, says to them, and she overhears him apparently. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is saying something he said before. He's saying something that is clear in the scriptures, that he was sent in his earthly ministry to the lost people or the nation of Israel. This, this is an exclusiveness of Jesus' ministry. We, on the hindsight of the gospel of the cross, look at his extension to the world, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But at the time... His focus was on the nation of Israel. 
So what he's saying is true. It's biblical. It's the way the Lord had worked out. In fact, he had even said to, um, um, when he sent out in chapter 10, if you don't remember that back, way back in chapter 10, that he sent out his disciples to do some practice ministry, and he's going to coach them how to do it. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and, uh, or enter the towns of the Samaritans, other Gentiles, or mixed breed, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. That's it. So his training of his own disciples was only to Israel. And it's true. What Jesus said is true. He's only lost the lost sheep of Israel. But you know what makes this a little awkward? He's standing in a Gentile city saying it. Right? He's standing there in a Gentile city, surrounded by Gentiles, saying, I was sent to the house of Israel. Why would he be saying that there at that time? Why is that an answer to this dilemma? Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him. Somehow she got past the disciples. She worked her way in there. She's now within contact of Jesus. So much so that she can speak to him directly, and so much so that she knelt before him. She's in very close proximity of him. And she's, her request is very simple. Lord, help me. She she ignores the disciples' resistance to her and gets close enough to address him personally. Lord, help me. This is the second time she uses the word Lord, Master. Master, help me. She again acknowledges her need and her helplessness. She again is saying that she is powerless and she knows that she's addressing someone who is very powerful. So she makes her appeal again. To which Jesus then answers in a way that for most of us catches us off guard. If we're honest when we first read this. Verse 26. He's, and he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Makes us, at first reading, a little uncomfortable. Or maybe it was just me. Jesus is using a word picture. He's using imagery. Instead of just stating a fact in his classic giftedness as a teacher, he paints a picture so people can see what he's, what he's saying. And he describes a table, a dying table full of food, maybe a banquet table, and there's children. If you take care for children, you feed them. You don't put the dogs on the table. You feed the children at the table. He also may be alluding to the banquet that the Jews and we anticipate when he returns of a, when the, we'll sit with the Lord and have a banquet. So the imagery of banquet is very important. But the children are clearly the children of Israel. They're the family. It's sent to only to the lost people, children of Israel. They're the family. And he's the table, the bread, are an allusion to the covenant blessings, the kingdom benefits that they would get as being part of the family. And he uses the term dogs. He says... Um, it's not right to give it to the dogs. Now, that's the part that makes us uncomfortable. I think, basically, Jesus is simply just using a colloquialism, the language of the day. He's using a racial, racial, we would call it a slur, a racial designation, because that's how they talked. That's what they Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. He just said it. I think, also, he said out loud what his disciples were thinking. He just, had, he just said it. They were thinking it. I also think he said out loud what the woman was thinking. 
she also understood the picture that he was painting. Jesus is not the first time, this is not the first time Jesus speaks sharply with people. We could go through a litany of times in the context of what it was where he said things very direct and very pointed and very uh, not how to win friends and influence people. He calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He calls them hypocrites and a series of vipers and all these kind of things. We say that's okay because they deserve it. But she doesn't deserve this. He's just saying what they would say anyways. And yet, is Jesus accurate in what he says? Does the woman think he's accurate in what he says? Look at verse 27. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. That's her response. Again, for the third time, she refers to him as Lord, Master. She's acknowledging her submission and her humility to Jesus even as a Canaanite woman. This woman, in her response, accepts what Jesus said. She accepts it. She does not not get defensive. She does not argue with him. She does not disagree with him. She accepts it. She again shows a degree of spiritual knowledge and a spiritual perception that the disciples themselves lacked. She acknowledges that she's not a child of Israel. She's not. She's not in line with the covenant blessings of the covenant. She's not. She's actually in a group of people who are arch enemies from a long time ago of Israel. She acknowledges that. She admits that she she, uh, um, does not deserve any of the covenant blessings. She does not deserve anything on the table. Jesus owes her nothing. She admits that. That's why she asks for mercy. That's why she asks for mercy. She is convinced that Jesus has enough power as the Lord, as the Son of David. He has enough power to take care of all the Jewish needs, and he still has some left over for her and her daughter. Look at Jesus' response. Is is this my reading of her view of things accurate? Let's see what Jesus' response to her was. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. We can count on our hands, probably a single hand, the number of times Jesus says, great is your faith. He says it to this woman. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire, And her daughter was healed instantly. Literally is that hour. We don't think the daughter was, there's no evidence that the daughter was with her. That that hour, boom, like the centurion, boom, she was healed. Jesus commends her for her great faith because she understood what was going on. It's also, I think, significant that it wasn't too long ago in Matthew's text, in the end of chapter 14, where he's dealing with the disciples And they have the whole walk on water incident that we like talking about as Christians. And what's the conclusion of the walk on water incident there? Remember Jesus' comment to them when Peter's starting to go down and Jesus has to stick his hand out? What does he say to his disciples? Oh, you of little faith, why do you still doubt? 
and then we transition conflict to the leaders and there's a Canaanite woman who has great faith not an accident the progression there is obviously very intentional I think here in this passage there's two things that we need to pay attention to one is the panoramic view of the gospel the idea that the wide view of things I I think we again this is not a cop-out this is the reality of our generation 20th, 1st century Americans do not appreciate some of the things that happened here. But we also need to keep our whole Bible in mind and remember where this was in Jesus' life. And he was, he, this is a, Jesus is hinting on some epic things that are happening. And I just want to draw a very quick, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it helps me. I draw a lot of things, a lot of diagrams and a lot of charts and stuff. Um, my office is many whiteboards, but let's just say, now, last time I drew a circle, and it was all of humanity. This is a line, and it's all of time. Thank you. Very good. I work hard at this, by the way, okay? Here's, here's creation, and oh, that's Adam. Creation, Adam. And then soon after that is the Tower of Babel. Didn't take very long. And what's the significance of the Tower of Babel? The fall of humanity? Yeah, but what, what's the significance of the, what happened there? They were scattered. Uh, what, what was the specific? They were scattered, but why were they scattered? They spoke different languages. Oh, sorry, I didn't see your hand. Sorry. They, didn't, they, they spoke different languages. God's judgment on them was that suddenly there's this one line. We'll talk about that. But now there's all these other lines, languages, cultures people groups okay there's all sorts of them in the world history is all these groups okay this is not to scale okay and there's abraham and there's david and the and then there's jesus and then this So the history of the Bible, by what it's about, is God said yes, and then he calls a man named Abraham and promises to make him a great nation. And all the people, all the families of the world will be blessed because of you. Right? The God's initial reaction right after the fall, we can say earlier, but let's just stick with Abraham, is the whole world is going to be blessed because of you. And Abraham is Isaac, Jacob, they have a family, the family goes to Egypt, they become a family, they become a nation, okay, very quickly, okay? They become a nation, they come out of Israel, they go into the, into the land. What do they do when they enter the land? What do they spend most of their time doing in the Old Testament? Complaining, fighting other nations, being succumbed by the idolatry of other nations. This, this time is just one big thing of war and mayhem and captivity and... And nobody gets along, am I correct? Oversimple, oversimplification. But what Jesus is saying, and when Jesus shows up, these tensions are real. These, the Canaanites and, and uh, the Philistines and just uh, Babylonians and Assyrians, the Romans, the Romans are up here, this is Rome, okay? The Romans, they're all still fighting and, and arguing with each other, killing each other, conquering each other, rebelling against each other. But yet God, through the Scripture, has one line 
and one family and one nation that he gives the scriptures to, that he gives the temple to, that he gives the prophets to, that he's saying, here is the gospel. He's given those things to the same people over and over and over again. And when he gets to the time of Jesus, this is the world that Jesus lives in. It's all, a big part of it is ethnic and political conflict. Not unlike today. But the difference is, the difference is that Jesus is stating now in this text, and as we move forward in Matthew, he's going to get more verbal about it, that you know what? Things are going to change. I'm going to change things. I'm going to make things different. This conflict, because of what I'm going to do, is going to be able to be taken care of and be removed. And since that time, what's happened, and we're going to read a text in a minute. Actually, let's read the text first. So when Jesus, by the time Jesus gets there, there's all this conflict. There's all this these fighting. I've said that over again. So, um, and the hostility is there. What I want to do is just, in hindsight, to help us appreciate what Jesus changed, that Jesus knew is changing, but we need clarity looking back. Paul helps us do that. So on this, on this side, we're on this side of the cross. We can look back and understand with greater clarity, let's give the disciples some credit, than the disciples had. So I want to walk through very quickly Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and we're going to read this very quickly just for us to feel. Now, here's the context of what Paul's talking about. You have Gentiles and Jews who hate each other, who are in conflict, and he's saying, you know what? You're in the same church. It goes away. No more conflict. Why? Let's read about it. I'm going to read through this very quickly. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, a slur, by the way, which is made by the flesh of hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's saying, you guys are all part of these lines. You weren't part of this line. That's what Paul's referring to. He's talking to the Gentile Christians. Verse 13, But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and he who has made us both one has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in the law the commandments that express in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Nice nice play on words there. And he came and preached preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, and in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom we also were being built together into a dwelling place um, of God by his Spirit. We could spend a series on that, and we have in the past. Here's my point of reading that. Jesus, Paul is explaining that what happens with the cross is that all this world of cultural hostility, all this ethnic things 
gender, all the things that cause division in the world, if they understand the cross, the power of the cross goes away. And since that time, little trickles people have been moving from these ethnic groups. They've been moving to this line. They are now part of the promises that are in this whole line. It comes through the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. Not everybody does, but then someday... All these lines, we've talked about this a number of times, will merge at the last judgment. These people will continue. These people will not. Okay? My point being, and what, Paul, what Jesus is alluding to here, and this is why I think he's standing in a Gentile city, he's anticipating that hostility going away. He's anticipating that ge- the gender and racial things going away. He said that there would be reconciliation and unity in that passage in Ephesians because of his blood, because he pays the penalty for sin. All the things that divide us are removed. Now we can have peace and unity. He also says in that passage that there'll be a new community. He gives allusions to the new community. One man, one body. No longer strangers and aliens. There is going to, we're, he calls us now the people who are here, the temple. There's no building. We're the temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. All that new community language. That new community language is our identity in Christ. That new community is who we are, and then we function, like we say with the gospel questions. Who is God? What has he done? He's taken away all of the, uh, the alienation. And who are we? We're a new community, regardless of where we're from, regardless of our background, regardless of our history. We're now one in Christ, and therefore we are to live in unity and reconciliation. And this, this foundation of new community extends just past um, ethnic, ethnicities and nations. For example, in Galatians, Paul says, as many of you were baptized into Christ, put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There is, for we are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise, this line, through Christ is yours, is ours. It's interesting is when we get here, when we get to this time at the banquet, as it's pictured in Revelation of a banquet, it says there that the, uh, I think it's the elders, I can't remember who's actually saying this song, singing this song, but it says in Revelation 5, I think it's the elders, somebody, that's, that's profound, somebody is doing this. They, and they, this is what he said, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, speaking of Jesus, uh, to open its seals, for you, you were slain and, your blood you, for, and by your blood you ransomed for people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to your God, and they shall reign on earth. The picture of heaven is a very diverse, ethnically, background, male, female, a wide variety of people will be there, and Jesus knows that. And this Canaanite woman is one of the early benefactors of that. The, last, the other thing I want to just touch on very briefly is not only is there a panoramic view of the gospel, which is the context, which is the context for this woman, but we can't go past too quickly that she is commended for her great faith. She's commended for her great faith. Jesus, is, Jesus does not do that a lot, so it's worth our paying attention. Three things that I think show of her great faith, and I'm just going to touch on them briefly. 
One is that great faith is born out of great need. Great faith is born out of great need. What does this text teach us about great faith? That's what I'm trying to say. It's born out of great need. This woman was not only spiritually helpless, but she was socially excluded from Israel, from the promises. That's a great need. Her daughter was being traumatized by the demonic, by spiritual warfare. And we assume that the others she consulted could not do anything for her. She's at the end of her rope. And her honesty about her disadvantages, about her brokenness, about her inability, motivated her to look beyond her circumstances to Jesus. Her faith was rooted in her great need. Second thing I think you see here is that the great faith is focused on a great Savior. Great faith is focused on a great Savior. She was obsessed, if I can use that word in a good way, with Jesus as being the Lord, Master, and the Son of David, a title given to the eternal King. She somehow understood that and would not let go of that concept, that understanding. He was the eternal king. She didn't understand all the nuances, but she knew it was true. She was going to insist that that eternal king respond to her. In a way, and what's interesting, in contrast with Matthew, she understood something that the Pharisees totally missed. And it's even more important, I think, is in why she did that is, in another way, she understood a lot less than those hyper-educated Pharisees did, but the difference between her and what little she had in them she acted on the little bit of knowledge she had. She went to Jesus. One of the things that we need to remember, I, I want to just highlight something, is that um, we, the, the, the danger of being in a church often and talking about Jesus often and being familiar with Jesus is sometimes we're not in awe of Jesus. We're not overwhelmed with his majesty. We're not overwhelmed with his power. Again, maybe it's me, but just thinking about it and studying it, I have to be conscientious sometimes of knowing who is it that I'm praying for, who is it that I believe in, and not just take it for granted that just because we name Jesus that we really appreciate it. In a couple weeks from now, we're going to be looking at Matthew 16, and Jesus, after some happens, he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give him all sorts of religious responses. Some say that you are... um, John the Baptist coming back. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Some say other prophets. Everybody has a religious answer for who Jesus is. And then Jesus asks them the very pointed question, who do you say that I am? And they said, and he, Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, um, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't figure this out on your own. God the Father let you know that. But this answer that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is what we know as, in biblical terms, is the great confession. This is the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. At Red Sea, when we formed our mission, draw to Christ, developing community, deploying to culture, I went around the diagram, okay? Our, our, the root of draw to Christ is the great confession. The text that we proof text that with is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How do we know that? Because God the Father tells us and shows us that. When we talk about drawing to Christ at Red Sea, we don't simply just mean relationally, which we do, 
but we mean cognitively. We mean understanding should increase greater and greater depth of who Jesus is. All that he has, not just his titles, but also what those titles mean, like son of Abraham, son of David, um, the son of the living God. And the reason we do that is because so that our faith is rooted in a very big Jesus. I think one of our struggles, I know for myself, I'll say this for myself. If this applies true to you, then great. If it doesn't, we'll move on. But I think one of the struggles I have with faith is not so much because my circumstances are so big. My struggle in having faith isn't because my circumstances are so overwhelming. I think it's because my understanding and perception of Jesus is too small. When I'm struggling and I stop and think about it, often I view Jesus as a genie. I need this Jesus, give it to me, and I prefer it now. Instead of thinking of him as Lord, son of David. Maybe that's just me again. Thirdly and lastly, faith is persistent. Faith is persistent. This should be self-evident to us. If it didn't take persistence, it wouldn't be faith. We wouldn't need it. She was persistent in her pursuit for Jesus, both physically getting closer and closer to him, crying out to him, and she would not take no for an answer. If God answered our prayers instantaneously, um, then we wouldn't need faith. He'd just be a genie, just be a magic formula. But I think just like with this woman, I think God has bigger plans for us. He has more important things in our lives than just giving us the things we want, we think we want, we think we need. Some of them are very real. I'm not belittling the reasons we pray. But sometimes I think God's apparent silence is a means of him if... I think sometimes God's apparent silence, like Jesus not responding to her, is a means of him revealing the conditions of our hearts and the hearts of the people around us, like it did in the story. What do you really believe when he doesn't answer? What do we really desire when it appears he doesn't answer? What do we really trust when it appears he doesn't answer? I myself struggle with that. I've been praying for some things even recently, some tensions in my work needing to get some things done get some things accomplished, and praying specifically, Lord, I need help in here. What I need is help. I need to have some staff. And what does the Lord do? He answered that prayer. I got staff. You know what I have now? More work. Okay? I didn't figure that. I didn't see that coming. Darn it. I also prayed for a change in my schedule. I prayed for all these things. Lord, I got important things to get done here for kingdom work. You need to make sure my schedule gets cleared. So I go to a meeting this week. And with our directors and my boss, what does he give me? More work. No, he doesn't clear my schedule. He doesn't care about my schedule. No, not a time to talk about that, okay? We're not supposed to be revealing my heart. We're supposed to be talking about your hearts. What he gave me was a list of 12 churches to contact and to find out what their prayer needs are. We pray through all 257 CB Northwest churches as directors, as staff, every Tuesday for an hour, we pray through them all. So the person who's been collecting that for the past 10 years retired. People retire. Very inconvenient, by the way. 
He didn't consider my schedule. And so now it's divided up among us. And I was given 12 churches to contact, email, phone call, and say, how can we pray for you so that on April, whatever, two weeks from now, I have those prayer requests so the staff can pray for them. And you know what my response was? You guys know what my response was? I was annoyed. I really, seriously, was annoyed. And the Lord really convicted me as I've been, Lord, I've been praying for more opportunity to do the things I need to get done, and here I am given this annoyance of, think about what it is, praying for churches. What do I do for a living? I serve churches. And yet the very thing he gave me something to do, I found it revealed, it revealed my heart. The, the, the uh, frustration, the uh, impatience with other people. Impatience with churches. And yet that's my job. My point being of sharing that is not to make a big dramatic about that, is I think this is the biggest lesson I took away from this passage is with this woman. We saw her heart, and Jesus commended her for her great faith. We saw the disciples' hearts, like my heart, and it revealed biases that are not so pretty. Unanswered prayer, need for great faith, reveals our hearts and our need for the gospel. Which brings us to communion. Communion is a representation of the panoramic view of the gospel and the personalness of the gospel. Every week we celebrate communion. Every week we try to end the message pointing to the communion table because it's the gospel. And I want to remind you of this. When you come up today at the communion table, some of you, as you come up to take the table, I want to encourage you to think of two broad areas, a broad area and a specific area. For some of you, you may need to wrestle with the reality of ethnic bias or gender bias or some other bias, some other prejudice, some other group of people that you really don't like and have a conflict with. I'm thinking group of people. Maybe you don't want them to have the gospel, and you don't even care that they don't have the gospel. I think we have those groups of people. If so, I ask that you confess that to the Lord. Others of you saying, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. Then others of you might need to say, just like the woman, I have a need. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. Have mercy on me. The communion table is for both. Those deep-seated prejudices and the needs from personal mercy we get them both at the table. If you responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, you claim to be or are a follower of Christ, we invite you up in a few minutes as we start singing to take communion with yourself, a family member, whatever, a home community. Come up, take the bread, break it, dip it into wine or juice as you so choose. Take it, but with a prayer of repentance and faith that Christ is the Lord. He is the Son of David. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bigness and the personalness of the gospel, and that it incorporates all the generational and ethnic hostility that's around us, but it also at the same time, Lord, um, allows us to have mercy for our times of deep need uh, in our lives. So we just thank you. We just give you the glory in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.